Welcome to Getaway Car, the podcast hosted by two sisters discussing all the amazing places we've been lucky enough to travel. I'm Beanie. And I'm Katie. And I'm Josh. Join us each week as we break down each stop on the road trips we've taken. We'll tell you about all our favorite places, funny stories, mistakes we made, and everything that happens on one of our road trips. We'll make recommendations and ask for yours. Join us in the Getaway Car. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Getaway Car. Minus Beanie. I know. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to be here for this Sorry, stop. Sorry, it off that way. It's so weird. This is an unusual episode because I was not on the road trip, but I'll be here to talk about it. Yeah. It'll be a conversational catalyst. Questions. <laughs> I'll read you some fun facts along the way. So after I left, what happened? We dropped you off at the airport. Celebrated. Rude. No, I was kidding, say, you mean cried. cried? Cried uncontrollably <laughs> for hours and Katie hours. Katie and... un- Unconsolable? Inconsolable. Inconsolable. Yeah. I believe it. Day. Yeah. <laughs> so we decided, as we always do, to console ourselves and do laundry. <laughs> um, so... Something that has never consoled anyone yeah, in the history no, right. of humanity. Uh, but no, so we're, we're still at this KOA that we've been at for two or three days now. And we're like, oh my God, we like, basically live here now. Yeah. Two or three days in one location is... Wow, we've never done it on yeah. one of our road trips. But we did laundry because we were like, okay, we just cleared everything out. We just sorted through and organized everything to figure out what Beanie's taking home with her and what we're keeping. So we were like, let's just start fresh. We'll do all the laundry. We'll get caught up in the head on. Yeah. So we made friends with the lady in the laundry room. You, I, you made friends? <laughs> uh, when I say we, I don't remember how it started. But since the chance of me initiating conversation with a stranger is basically zero, I'm assuming that... Josh made the initial. Yeah, I'm assuming yeah. Josh just started talking you know, to someone outreach. as he does. That's prob- probably me. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you turn around and Josh has just made a friend. Yes. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is the thing we're doing now. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so she was really nice. I don't remember her name, but she was there doing laundry as well. Her and her husband, I guess, had retired, I want to say a year or two before, and they bought an RV and have just been road tripping around the country ever since. That is all I want in life. Right. So she was telling us about places that they've gone and we were showing her pictures of the places we've been. She made some recommendations. I guess her and her husband spent a couple of weeks in Alaska and how like she really recommended we go there. And I mean, of course, it was already on our bucket list, but just yeah. like moved it a little higher up yeah. on the yeah. bucket Helps list. specific yeah. recommendation, yeah. Because everything she was saying, we were like, oh my God, yeah, that does sound amazing. Yeah. If our next one is Alaska, that'll be why. Yeah. So we just had a chill morning, like caught up in got organized and decided to go spend one more day in Seattle because apparently we're addicted and we just can't get enough. (laughs) I was, I mean, pleasantly surprised by Seattle. Yeah. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did, but every day was great. And different parts of the city, you get such a different feel. You know, when you go by Pike Place, it's it's much more bustling and there's music everywhere, but then you go up by Volunteer Park and it's, it's much more serene and quiet and nice and, you know, it doesn't feel like the same city. Yeah. So there is a lot to see there. It's just, it's all beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, like each of the three days we were there were very different from each other, but I loved all of them. And uh, you can see Mount Rainier from all of it. <laughs> yes, you can. That's apparently the top qualification for apparently anything Apparently only Seattle. if you have good weather, which we did, because we are magical weather fairies and brought all of the good weather with us. Yeah. We started at the Olympic Sculpture Park, which is right along the waterfront near where we were the first day. Near the Ferris wheel and the oddities shop. Yeah. <laughs> so a little further down from there. So being With the bunny dove. Doing, we're going to have Beanie <laughs> yeah. read a little blurb about the park. Yeah. So it says, as a former industrial site, the sculpture park's nine acres have undergone extensive restoration, achieving a range of environmental goals, including brownfield redevelopment, creation of a Chinook salmon habitat, and a pocket beach. 
extensive use of native plantings, and the capture and use of on-site rainwater. The sculpture collection features major works by influential artists from the past half-century up to the present day. Temporary art installations during summer months add vibrancy and an element of surprise to the park experience. So I love basically everything about that. Yeah. I think it's so cool that they took this previously industrial wasteland and turned it into something really, really cool. Yeah, they were like, hey, artists, make this better. Yeah. And I like that they rebuilt the habitats and included a little... Everything about it. I'm just obsessed. Yeah. Did you guys have favorite sculptures? Yeah. You start... The park starts at street level, and at the top of the park, there's a pavilion where they have the temporary art things, like I said. So the one that was in there when we were there was... It just looks like panes of different colored glass hanging from the ceiling. So we have a picture. And I don't have a picture of the plaque or what it was labeled or what... Like, who made it, so apologies to whichever artist this was, but it was just cool. Yeah, we can post a picture. And then the rest of the park is outside, so they have this wide, grassy area that's kind of steps that goes down, and you follow it along. Yeah. And then they have all these trees that they planted, so it's kind of like this little patch of woods in the middle of the city. So the first big sculpture is one of my favorites, and this one's called Wake. The artist's name is Richard Serra, and it's just these huge kind of rusty brown metal curvy shaped things it's kind of hard to describe um but <laughs> it actually wasn't a bad description yeah yeah i mean we'll post a when picture, you see the it, picture yeah. it doesn't really do it justice they're also really big like i probably only come up to about halfway on these huh. like they're real they're much bigger than they look so they're like eight feet tall okay no, <laughs> not that short so this one says we have a little paragraph here about the piece Richard Serra's wake. For Serra, space is a substance as tangible as sculpture. The towering curved steel forms were achieved with computer imaging and a machine that once made nuclear submarines. Oh, wow. Wake is composed of five identical modules, each with paired S-shapes, gently curving serpentines of convex and concave sections, suggesting tidal waves or profiles of battleships. See, I was going to say battleships. That's, oh. that's where my mind went. That's yeah, cool. That's how it was made. It, just, it does look like a hole. Huh. Like a little fleet coming at you in the middle of the water. But that was one of, my, one of my favorites. And then there's some other cool sculptures here. They're kind of integrated with the landscape. So as you're walking along, they're like in between these trees and these plantings yeah, and stuff. Yeah, that's very cool. This next one is my one of my other favorites. Beverly Peppers. I'm going to butcher this, but Perez Ventaglio III. Very odd name for a sculpture, but it's this, it looks kind of like a cross between a water wheel and like an asterisk. Yeah, it's I like actually thought buried. of a water wheel, but like square. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's really cool though. So I almost walked by it because in this picture, we'll post a picture that we took that came out really well. You can see it really clearly, but from certain angles, the surface of it is all mirrored. And so from certain angles, Ah. all you can see is the plants around it. So it just blends in. So it just blends in. It's got this weird, like, shimmery, almost invisible thing going on. Yeah. The light has to catch it for you to notice it. Right. And so I was walking by, and it it was like one of those, like, you walk forward, you walk back, you walk forward, you walk, because just trying to get your eye to catch it from different angles. Mm. I really, really liked it, and I I don't know why. I just, I really enjoyed what it looks like and how it functioned in that space. Yeah. So I'll read that. So Beverly Peppers, Perez Ventaglio III. I assume that I pronounced that horribly wrong. (laughs) But constructed in 1967. One of the first sculptors of her generation to be captivated by industrial materials, Pepper achieved a cool objectivity in Perez Ventaglio III with its sleek manufactured appearance. Light heightens the optical effect of the sculpture, its surface reflecting the surrounding environment. Oh, there you go. It's kind of what you said. I liked my it does. It looks like, better, it looks but, like you know. yeah. rings almost. It looks like, I mean, each, each section of it is smaller than if we're nest, like nesting into each other. And it is, I don't know, it's just a very interesting piece. It's very cool. Yeah. 
So you keep going through. At one point, like, you can see the Space Needle, and there, there's a ton of gorgeous stuff in this park. And, of course, it's, like, right on the water, so you can see all the way out over, yeah, you know, the, in, into the bay. The grounds are gorgeous and well-manicured. They've got nice walking paths, a lot of trees lining the walking paths. It's just a very well-maintained park as well. It's just a nice outside stroll. And then my third favorite one was this orangey, brownish one right on the water called the eagle. And I, it doesn't remind me of an eagle. I don't see the eagle at all. I just think it looks cool. <laughs> it was very cool. It's got very beak-like shapes to it or like talons. I can see the... It sort of evokes an eagle rather than pretending to be one. Kind of, yeah. But I just I just like the way it looks. I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, so those were my three favorites. Which ones did you like? Wake was very cool. I, I liked that one. It was very bold and very big and it, it stood out. I did like the one that it was Love and Loss. So Love and Loss says it was commissioned specifically for the Olympic Sculpture Park. Features benches that are functional and meaningful. A tree forms the V of love with which blossoms and loses its leaves seasonally. A reminder of nature's cycles which mirror human experience. Oh, that's cool. And the artist's name is Roy McMacken. I'm going to take a look at the picture there. They are benches when they're, you know, in the shapes of letters. And they're strewn about to spell love and loss. And just, it's very well, it's, it's very interesting looking. Yeah, it's very cool. So yeah, we wandered all the way through there. So that path zigzags all the way down to the water mm-hmm. and has the sculptures along it. So when you get to the bottom of the path, there's a bike path and like a walking trail. And so it runs all the way down through the base of Olympic Sculpture Park. And then there's two adjacent parks beyond that that connect to it, like, along the waterfront. So you can just walk along this trail along the waterfront for probably miles. Nice. So that's what we did. We we have some pictures of the little beach area that's there. They have picnic areas. They have a little formal garden a little further down, go rose garden. And then a lot of it's just kind of open grassy fields and then some trees and stuff along the waterfront until you get down to where it's more heavily industrial and it kind of turns back into... I guess what the whole thing looked like before. Yeah. So they have docks and weird loading, unloading contraptions for the cargo ships. And then if you go down all the way towards the end, it turns into the rail yard and there's a pedestrian bridge that goes over it that connects you back to the main part of the city. Huh. So we have a picture of the bridge too, that this really futuristic looking metal spirally thing. Yeah, it looks like the bridge of a spaceship. Kind of. So we did that and it, again, we had perfect weather. It was just such a good day to like walk around and chill out and do our own thing. Seeing the Space Needle in so many pictures, it's just, (laughs) it's it's apparently just visible from everywhere. It's a tall building. Right? I love it. I mean, you can kind of see why I like the symbol of Seattle if it's from everywhere. For sure. And then the second half of day, we went to do an underground tour. So if you've never heard of the underground tours or the Seattle Underground, don't feel bad. We never had either. This is one of the things that we discovered once we got to Seattle. And we decided to add on because, you know, we do try and build some leeway into our itineraries so we can adapt and add stuff on as we find interesting things to do. And this one I think was really worth doing. So we went to Pioneer Square. Pioneer Square is the city's like original downtown area. We actually have a blurb, Beanie, that I'm going to have you read for Pioneer Square. Okay, so it says, In the summer of 1889, the Great Seattle Fire burned about 30 city blocks, including much of the business district, devastating Pioneer Square. What happened with the Great Seattle Fire? I don't know what that is. Okay, so this is an article from the University of Washington University Libraries. So this is the spring of 1989. 1989? Oh, I was like, I just read 1889. 1889. We're 100 okay. years off. Okay. 1889. On the afternoon of June 6th, 1889, John Back, an assistant in Victor Claremont's woodworking shop on Front Street and Madison Avenue, was heating glue over a gasoline fire. 
Sometime after 2.15, the glue boiled over, caught fire, and spread to the floors, which were covered by wood chips and turpentine. So many flammable things right. on the same place. I'm like, where was ocean for this? Oh, wait. <laughs> we have glue, we have gasoline, we have turpentine, we have wood chips. Right. Great. Yeah. I feel very safe. He tried to put the fire out with water, but oh, that, only, no. that only served to thin the turpentine and spread the fire further. Uh, everyone got out of the building safely, and the fire department got to the fire by 2.45, half an hour later. Oh, my God. Um... You know, Half an hour. They were slow back then. For a fire. And this was 1889. Yeah, fair. They just had guys with buckets. <laughs> but by that time, there was so much smoke that it was hard to find the source of the fire. And by the time it was found, the fire was out of control. <sighs> so it quickly spread to the Dietz and Meyer liquor store, which exploded. Oh my god, of course it did. Yep. So the Sounds liquor store right. exploded. The Crystal Palace Saloon and the Opera House Saloon fueled by alcohol. The entire block from Madison to, to Marion was on fire. Wow. Um, another big issue they had here, it says here, was the water supply. They lost water pressure. So Seattle's water supply proved to be a major problem in the fire fighting. Uh, at the time, water was provided by the privately owned Spring Hill Water Company, and hydrants were only located on every other street. And oh. the pipes were small, and many were made out of hollowed logs. Oh, several, no. several of which burned in the fire. Oh, no. <laughs> a flaw in the plan. Like, this oh, is no. just like a <laughs> The perfect of storm. Right. Yeah. Like, You've got what, all these flammable materials near liquor stores, right. near wooden pipes to bring the water to the, the fire. Right. Oh, God. Right. And as more hoses were added to the fire, water pressure fell to the point that the hoses didn't work. Oh, no. So the firemen tried to keep the fire from spreading further by pumping water from the Elliott Bay onto the commercial mill, but the tide was out. So, of course you know, the tide was out. Oh, no. Of course the tide was out. The hoses were not long enough to reach the side of the building. Um, wow. What a disaster. So, as a side note, to add insult to injury, crowds harassed the firefighters as the water pressures fell because it's their fault. America! Oh, so they're going to go yell at the firefighters while they're trying <laughs> to learn? Do better! <laughs> By four, most residents realized that downtown Seattle was doomed. By four? Yeah, so... (laughs) Took them a while. Roughly an hour and 45 minutes later to realize that downtown Seattle was doomed because it started jumping blocks. So how how big did it end up being? Uh, So by the end of this, it had burned 120 acres. 120 acres of 25 city blocks of downtown Seattle was destroyed. That's horrifying. As was every wharf and mill from Union to Jackson Streets. Wow. Statistics on how many people died, it was apparently relatively low. It's estimated that one million rats were killed. And they counted the rats, but not the human beings? Yeah, it's estimated. That seems like a weird I mean, census to that take. That seems like a really extreme form of extermination. Yeah. Th- thousands of people were displaced. 5,000 men lost their jobs. The city okay. estimated its losses at over $8 million. In 1889. Uh, $8 yeah. million in 1889, right. Yeah. Wow. $8 million doesn't sound like that much, but who in 1889? Yikes. That's crazy. Total losses may have been as high as $20 million. So, that leads so, us to the next part in which they had to rebuild. Yes. So, Seattle Underground is the original Seattle, basically, before they rebuilt. Right. And the reason it's called the Seattle Underground is because it is literally underground now. Right. So, when they rebuilt, that Seattle Underground is at 25 blocks. And when they rebuilt, they raised the whole thing up a story by sluicing from higher up and bringing the mud, dirt, everything else down and rebuilding a new foundation. So the underground is now what used to be the alleys and basements and other old storefronts. And they restarted us a floor higher. Yeah, so they recreated what the ground floor was. Instead of of tearing it all down, they just 
Yeah, we're going to bury this. And yeah. Just Can you ignore. imagine being the person to propose that initially? Like, hey, let's just bury everything and start and over. Start over. Right. But from the sound of it, it solved a lot of the problems they were having, right? They were like... Yeah, so I guess when they built initially, they that area was really marshy and wet and not very ideally suited for habitation. Mm-hmm. And so when they sluiced all of this extra material down and raised the ground level and regraded, it made it much more livable and like improved their right. drainage system and their public water system and they got to redo a bunch of stuff that was kind of half-assed before that. Right. Yeah. They, they stopped using hollowed-out logs as water pipes. Yeah. yeah. You know. Pro tip, don't of, do that. Yeah. When they were doing that, there's a lot of infrastructure problems that got solved. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so the underground what a tour... a idea, though. Yeah. Right? So the underground tour, you, you start in the basement of this tour building, and they do a presentation on how this all started, and they give you like a little bit of the history, and they show you some of the photos. And then you actually go into underground that's been excavated now. So it's got the original buildings and the original streets and the sidewalks. And, but you're um, underground. That's so but, you're, but you're underground. And in certain parts of the tour, they've actually built these glass blocks into the ceiling. So when they poured the new sidewalk, they built in these glass blocks. You could see down underneath the old Seattle where it used to be crazy um so it's like having these skylights in the underground area yeah so you can Um, see people walking above you yeah so like when you're on the tour you look up and you can see people's feet just like walking along (laughs) and like when you're out on the sidewalk you just all of a sudden come upon these glass block portions of the sidewalk you're like oh this is odd you don't really think anything of it but yeah, it's just, it's really, really cool. And so they, they start up and you go through this old bank building and you go through like these street corners and they still have some of the street signs up. Oh, and wild. then they have these hollowed out like wooden logs that they used for the public water system. Oh, you can see the water pipes. You can actually see some of them, the original ones to the build, to the oh, city no. that are still in place. They have one where it's broken off and you can see the end of it and you can see how thick it is. Yeah. yeah. And it's and just, it's crazy. Thin openings in those pipes. You can see there's, we saw an old bathroom. A bathroom from 1889. One of them. <laughs> yep. Probably not functional. What did a bathroom look like in 1889? Oh, well, it doesn't look like much now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then they have they have these diagrams of buildings that were built in that time frame. So like straddling that before they started construction on the new level. Yeah. Any buildings that were built during that time frame had to have two entrances. So you built one at the original ground level to be used until it got uh, and then you had to have a second entrance built into the second floor, floor of your building yeah. because that was eventually going to become your main entrance on the first floor so at one point you could be walking down the street and you just see these two doors like stacked on top of each other and you're like what right like, yeah why is this door just floating in midair but, mind-bending experience right you're like this um, will be under where i'm standing will be underground next week <laughs> right they have some photos of like what seattle used to look like and yeah you know and just to see that and then actually stand there and oh that's, that's that building right, right yeah there. that's what's in front of me right and it they raised it as really high as cool. 22 feet they said in some places 22 feet wow yeah and you can see a lot of old stuff where they you know did some demolition you can there's a lot of old building materials down there they got torn down and just left there because what else are you gonna do with it yeah and so I guess a little bit of history on the tours of the underground. So the tour group we went through is Bill Spidel's Underground Tour. And it says it started in 1954. And it was the story of how Pioneer Square was saved. And so basically Pioneer Square kind of went downhill for a while. Basically considered beyond repair and was falling apart. And people were like, let's just raise it and start over. Mm-hmm. And so this guy, Bill Spidel and his wife, Shirley... They were like, well, what if what if we restored it and fixed it up and made it a tourist attraction instead of just raising it and starting fresh? Right. 
And so I guess he mentioned to some people that there was this underground passageways through the city and the tunnels and everything. Yeah. And so many people heard about it and were like, that's really cool. It I is wanna, really cool. I want to see that. And it's so unique. So he's, it says within a couple days of that news getting out, they got 300 letters and a bunch of phone calls from people over the next two days who wanted to take a tour. And he said it was like people were calling every day. I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see it. Yeah. And so then he was like, okay, well, what if we bring this to the city council and say, hey, this really, is our plan. This is our plan. We want to fix it up. We can use this for revenue. Like, yeah. You know, we, this is what people I want. have they, demonstrated they interest. Want, yeah. Right. They want us to preserve it. And so mm-hmm. then they, it, it goes on through the history of like all the steps that they took to actually get that part of the city declared a historic part of the city and get it restored and fixed up. And then that's how the underground tours were born. Well, as it should be. That's an awesome story. And yeah. I mean, obviously not for everybody who, whose houses burned down, but <laughs> for the resilience of the city and for the city's history, that's yeah. a huge thing. Well, and it's It'd be just so disappointing so cool. if it didn't exist anymore. Yeah. I've never heard any of this prior to going to Seattle. Right. I never knew that this existed. I never knew this was a thing. I never knew any of no. this history of Seattle at all. I'm sure if you grow up in Seattle, then you learn this. But yeah. like that, yeah. anyway, it was just a really, really cool, really unusual thing that I never expected to do, never planned to do. But it was really interesting. And the tour wasn't that expensive either. I mean, it was, and it lasted for quite a while. It was a couple hours, and you went in to the under, you know, some random bar. And, you know, you sit there and then go downstairs and then go to the tour and pop out, you know, a mile and a half down the road from somewhere <laughs> else you've already been. And, and it's just a random door leading to the underground in the middle of Seattle. That's so cool. One more little bit of information about the fire uh, and the changes that it had with Seattle. So fire led to a handful of other changes for the city. And at the time of the fire, the city had an all-volunteer fire department, <gasps> many of which quit after the fire because of the harassment they were receiving while trying to fight the fire. Yeah. So that personnel crisis led to the creation of the professional fire department. In Seattle. Oh, um, interesting. The city also took control of the water supply because, as we said before, it was privatized. Um, they increased the size of the pipes. They got rid of the wooden pipes. And they added more hydrants than more than, more than one per two blocks. Well, there you go. Creation of Seattle Fire Department. I was going to say, creation of Seattle as we know it today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In more ways than one. Yeah. Imagine so. a city like that having a, I mean, obviously it wasn't a big city at the time, but still having a, a fully volunteer fire department. Yeah. I mean, in 1889, I imagine that wasn't that uncommon. I don't think it was, yeah. But still, I mean, yeah, it is crazy to think about by yeah. today's standards. Turpentine fires everywhere. Yeah. No, the the <sighs> so. underground tour was definitely the highlight of that day for me. It was really, really cool. So that took up most of the rest of the day. After that, we went to an Irish pub near Pioneer Square called Fago, which was really good. We got really, really good food there. And then we went back to the KOA for the night. Nice. Our first day without you was not a total failure. That's <laughs> good. Thankfully. I'm glad. We I'm were also able glad. We console ourselves. It was with actually fun pretty things. awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. glad that I didn't take the good weather with me. Yeah. So, do you have any mistakes were made for this part? You could say it's a mistake to use wooden pipes, but that wasn't your mistake. Right. <laughs> our mistake. So it's a mistake to boil glue over turpentine. Also not our With a mistake. gasoline stove next to a liquor store. Right. The li- I think the <laughs> There's liquor so store many too. parts of that the story. We're going to go with Seattle made enough mistakes in 1889 yeah. <laughs> to cover the rest of history. Maybe that's why it's, it's so mistake-free now. now. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like just one small event. Like what's the one that was a, a horse kicked over a lantern? Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. And it burnt down like a, yeah. a massive portion of Ohio. I don't think it was Ohio. You're not thinking of the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah, I was thinking of Chicago. Thanks. Okay. Ohio and Chicago are apparently interchangeable in my mind. I was thinking about it and I was like, well... Oh, we're making so many I, people angry. <laughs> as I said it, I'm like, Ohio's not a city. No. So, that wraps up our time in Seattle. Uh, next week, I promise we will go somewhere different. <laughs> and... 
new and exciting experiences on the way. Yes. So we'll have more to share for you. So make sure you tune in for that. And until next time. Enjoy your ride in the getaway car. Bye. Bye. Bye.